Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. This Saturday, the FBI is going to mark its 100th anniversary. So today we're going to appraise the record of the FBI from its earliest efforts against gangsters all the way up to its present-day investigations. The Bureau traces its history back to 1908 when a small team of detectives was created within the Department of Justice. Back in those early days, this team of detectives did not even have uh, the authority to make arrests. Uh, They did not carry weapons. Um, But as the years went on and as the federal government grew, uh, so did the Bureau. Today, the FBI employs thousands of agents, not just here in the United States, but many are stationed now overseas. And the Bureau now uh, has an annual budget of several billion dollars. I think it's safe to say that the FBI is probably the most famous police agency in the world. Now, because of our limited time uh, here on the noon hour, we're obviously not going to be able to cover the 100-year history in any great detail, but we do want to do two things. First, looking back, we want to critically examine the actual record of the FBI, its actual record of performance, both the good and the bad. Second, we want to look forward and uh, discuss uh, policy recommendations, uh, reforms uh, that need to be done either internally with the FBI or through Congress uh, with respect to the future of the FBI going forward. Now, I'd like to get this started by making a few points to lay something of a foundation for our panel of experts. Everyone here knows that J. Edgar Hoover uh, built the modern FBI. Uh, If there's one thing that I think scholars seem to agree upon, it's that Hoover raised the bar for federal police agents. After Hoover, law enforcement was not just a job, it could be a career. Um, He said that anybody that wanted to work for him at the FBI, you either had to have uh, a law degree or an accounting degree, and these educational standards were unprecedented for the time. So he wanted to build an elite force. Uh, and he was, to some extent, able to uh, accomplish that objective, and that's something that uh, scholars give him credit for. Now, at the same time, I think it must be said that J. Edgar Hoover had a warped vision when it came to the role of a police agency in a free society. Uh, He would open up files on people not for legitimate law enforcement investigations, but he would open up files on people simply because he strongly disagreed with their political beliefs and uh, their political activism. After Hoover's death and when his files were opened up, it became clear that he let his FBI become something of a political dirt collection machine for presidents and members of Congress. Uh, If you were allied with Hoover and the FBI, he would feed you information on your political rivals. If you were not allied with Hoover and the FBI, then you ran the risk that he would be feeding information to your political opponents, information about yourself, your family, or your associates. It's now well known that Hoover not only wiretapped and bugged Martin Luther King, but he went so far as to take tapes of King's sexual uh, affairs, and he would play these tapes to uh, newspaper uh, editorial writers because he wanted to undermine King's leadership of the civil rights movement. And what is less well known, what is less well known is that when it became uh, public that uh, Martin Luther King was going to receive the um, Nobel Prize for Peace, 
this drove Hoover crazy because he thought Martin Luther King was getting these prestigious awards and he didn't deserve them. So the FBI went so far as to pressure King into committing suicide. They were saying, if you go, don't commit suicide, we're going to blackmail you. We're going to make these embarrassing details public. <clears throat> now, that is so far away from a legitimate law enforcement investigation as to be its very opposite. Now, another th issue I think that is important to highlight is that Hoover held the FBI out to be the best investigative service uh, in the world, and yet he went so far as to deny the existence of the mafia, and he did that for years and years until it became so obvious to everyone that the evidence was plain as day that he had to shift his position. And then he lurched completely in the opposite direction. He went so far as to try to crush mafia big shots by any means at his disposal. We now know that the FBI would let some mafia henchmen go ahead and commit violent crimes, including murder, so long as they were feeding information about other mafia families, and they're feeding that information to the Bureau. The FBI also looked the other way <coughs> while some totally innocent people went to jail for crimes that were committed by these uh, mafia henchmen. 60 Minutes did a story on this a few years ago. And they showed uh, through documentation that this just wasn't one FBI field office that was running amok. They showed the documentation and the memos that went to FBI headquarters that showed that at headquarters they knew this was going on and, and they let it happen. Last year, a federal judge ordered the government to pay $100 million to four men who served decades in prison for a 1965 murder that they did not commit. And this lawsuit was brought against the federal government because the FBI withheld evidence of their innocence. The judge said it took 30 years to uncover this injustice and that the government's defense that the FBI had no duty to come forward to correct this miscarriage of justice was just absurd. But the real turning point, in my view, uh, as far as the FBI image, is, is probably going to be the loss of, loss of life at Waco in 1993. It was the worst disaster in the history of federal law enforcement. More than 75 people died, including 25 children. Now, this didn't start out as an FBI operation. Uh, for those of you who uh, need some refreshing on that incident, it initially started out as an investigation by the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency. They wanted to, they were conducting a firearms investigation, and they conducted a raid on the Branch Davidian compound down in Waco, Texas. And during the course of that raid, there was a firefight, and people were killed on both sides. And then a standoff began. And it was shortly after the standoff that the FBI came in to take over the operation. And the FBI special agent in charge who took over at that time, he's, I think they started off with the right idea. He told the public that his goal was to wait as long as it took to end the standoff, to end things without any further bloodshed. And they wanted to resolve this dispute peacefully in federal court, and they were going to wait as long as it took to make that happen. As we all know, after 50 days of frustrating negotiations, uh, the FBI asked for and were given permission by Attorney General Janet Reno to assault the compound on April 19, 1993. They went in with tanks uh, to assault the Mount Carmel residents with tear gas. If the plan was to save lives, it was an utter disaster because virtually every person in the residence uh, died by the end of the day. Um, President Clinton, <coughs> Attorney General Reno, and FBI officials have tried to wrap up that whole incident as a mass suicide, but I think that's a distortion of what happened. Um, it doesn't matter that the Branch Davidian leader, David Koresh, was a criminal, and it ultimately uh, is beside the point that the Branch Davidians may have started the fire because 
There was no reason for the FBI tanks to attack the compound that morning, and the FBI officials have admitted, it's on the record, that when those tanks were smashing into that building, they did not know what was on the other side of that wall. There were women and children in there, and they did not know what was on the other side of that wall. So while some FBI agents did pull some of the Davidians out of the fire that day, we also know that some FBI agents acted recklessly with that conduct with the tanks. And we also know that the FBI obstructed a congressional investigation in 1996 into their operations because there was a civil suit a few years later, and there was a ton of documentation that came out during that litigation that we now know was not revealed to the Congress when they looked into the Waco investigation in hearings in, in 1996. Now, there have been real FBI achievements, which we are going to hear about. At the top of that list, I'd put the remarkable undercover investigation of Agent Joe Bistone in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He fooled mafia big shots into thinking that he was one of them, and he was able to collect enough information over a period of years to send 120 uh, mafia wise guys to prison. So I think that was an incredibly successful uh, investigation. As far as possible reforms go, I think the main problem is that the jurisdiction of the FBI is way too broad. We now have more than 4,000 uh, federal crimes on the books, and the overwhelming bulk of those uh, offenses are based upon a dubious interpretation of uh, the Commerce Clause of our Constitution, and they also duplicate many of the crimes that are already on the books at the state and local level that are handled by state and local police. In recent years, the FBI has been investigating carjacking, marijuana smuggling, prostitution, and with the conviction of that football player a few months ago, Michael Vicks, we now know that the FBI agents have also been conducting investigations into dogfighting. Now, at a time when al-Qaeda terrorists would like nothing better than to come back to the United States to perpetrate an atrocity on the scale of 9-11, this is a gross allocation of, mis of uh, limited law enforcement resources. But this is more of a policy question for the Congress, and it's something for congressmen to address. Too often, members of Congress want to expand the mission of the FBI to get them involved in the congressman's pet causes. And this ex expansion of the, F uh, of the FBI's jurisdiction causes them to forget about their main mission and gets them off into these, I think, less important uh, investigations that can be adequately handled by state and local police. Okay, with that background in mind, let's turn now to our panelists and, and see what they have to say. Our first speaker earned his master's degree in political science from Boston College and his Ph.D. in American history from the University of New Hampshire. He started working for the FBI 10 years ago and became the official FBI historian in 2003. He's published several articles about the FBI in peer-reviewed journals, and he's worked extensively uh, with the staff down at the museum down on Pennsylvania Avenue to put together uh, an exhibit on FBI history, which I recommend to you. You should go down there. It's a, it's a, it's a terrific exhibit. He's appeared in several documentaries about the FBI on both the History Channel and the Discovery Channel, and uh, we're glad that he could be with us this afternoon to give us the benefit of his perspective. So would you please welcome the official FBI historian, Dr. John Fox. Thank you, Tim. It's the FBI's 100th birthday this Saturday, and I thank you for inviting me to join you to talk about our history over the last hundred years, and of course on where this might take us over the next hundred. When Mr. Lynch first asked me to speak today, 
I racked my brain for an appropriate topic. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, libertarian, was one that kind of first appealed to me. But, of course, he wasn't a libertarian, although he certainly was um, very concerned about the FBI not being seen as a national police force. Then I thought, well, if this was the Heritage Foundation, I'd probably have an easier time because J. Edgar Hoover certainly was a social conservative and a law enforcement kind of guy. But I don't know where he stood economically. Did he support Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal programs? Uh, perhaps Dr. Theo Harris can tell us, but I'm not sure. If this were a forum for the nation, I would have spoken on J. Edgar Hoover as a progressive. This didn't seem quite appropriate for this forum. I'm not sure that the legacy of progressivism is something that the, the Cato Institute fosters. But I think that is an appropriate place to start. And that's because it takes us back even further than J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, Hoover was director for almost 48 years, so almost half of the FBI's existence. But for that other half, we've had other leaders, presidents, attorneys general, and, of course, directors. And the FBI, of course, was created in 1908 as part of that progressive movement. And so what I'd like to do is talk about the evolution of the Bureau, I, perhaps, in a sense, I'm throwing some red meat out here. I'm not going to address uh, many of the criticisms that Mr. Lynch brought up, at least not immediately or directly. But what I want to do is talk about how the FBI's authorities and roles have evolved over the years, because I think it gives us an indication of what we can look back on over the last 100 years to see what kinds of things change, what kinds of things don't change, and use that, in a sense, to understand what might happen in the next hundred years. That's really what we should be doing in a centenary celebration. So with that, a hundred years ago, there was no organized detective force in the federal government except for the Secret Service. For 30 years, that service had been providing investigators for the other executive agencies because there were at least some violations of federal criminal law that needed to be investigated. Congress, at least a handful of appropriators, looked askance at this, and it had to do with battles between Congress and the president over authority and who should do what. It was in the midst of this controversy, of course, that the Bureau was created, because in the spring of 1908, Congress passed a law forbidding the use of Secret Service investigators by any other executive branch agency. This left the Attorney General in a bind. The Department of Justice was the single largest user of Secret Service investigators in the government. Not surprising because he's primarily charged with enforcing the federal criminal law. And there were at least two dozen major things that the Department at that time was responsible for. So during July of 1908, Bonaparte, you may recognize the name, um, he was actually Napoleon's grandnephew, but there was a, a fair bit of difference. Yeah, French dictator, U.S. civil servant, the, the two sides of the family really didn't get along, at least back in Napoleon's day, and Bonaparte, of course, had been raised in Baltimore and become a noted civic reformer uh, in that city. 
before coming to Teddy Roosevelt's attention. Bonaparte was in a bind. He needed detectives. And so he went and, using monies that Congress had already appropriated for the detection and prosecution of crime, committed a small reorganization in the department. He took nine of those Secret Service investigators, hired them permanently as agents of the department, some early peonage investigators. Peonage was forcing someone else to work for you. It was uh, one of those Reconstruction-era civil rights-type laws. And a number of examiners or accountants who would go around look at the U.S. prisons and the um, U.S. courts to make sure there was no fraud. All told, 34 special agents. Very small. When Congress came back in the fall, remember this is the day when there was no air conditioning, so Congress left town pretty early in the summer, late spring, didn't come back into the fall. Some things worked pretty well in those days. When Congress came back, Bonaparte made his report, said over the summer, because of the law you passed last spring, I went and created the small force of detectives. Seems to be working okay. We'll see how it goes. Now, of course, Congress had held hearings earlier that spring. They were concerned about the use of the Secret Service. But their concern was whether or not the service was providing detectives for the entire federal government. They recognized that Bonaparte needed to have investigators, and so that wasn't an issue. Teddy Roosevelt was on his way out. He was a lame duck by the winter of 1908. Decided to, to tweak Congress a bit by saying, you know, when you passed that law last spring, it was because you don't like being investigated. Well, that's true, but it, it really was beside the point. Congress called the president to task, asked him to prove his claim, et cetera. You know, the battle back and forth over Christmas, it didn't touch the Bureau. In fact, within two years or so, Congress was actually giving the Bureau new authority. And I guess this is the first place where I'll probably be throwing some red meat out here. Congress began to federalize criminal violations that had previously been state or local matters. Of course, the 1910 law was the Mann Act, the White Slave Traffic Act. It was an anti-prostitution measure. But it did give the Bureau its first big increase in resources and manpower. It doubled the size of the Bureau effectively. And of course, over the years, that federalization of criminal law under Article I has been a source for the growth in the Bureau's responsibilities. 1919, interstate automobile theft. 1932, Federal Kidnapping Act was passed. 1934 was a key year. The Bureau was in the midst of that hunt for John Dillinger, uh, one of the notorious gangsters of the day. The Attorney General Homer Cummings following the Kansas City massacre the year before where a federal agent and several other law enforcement officers were killed while trying to take a fugitive back to prison said that there was this war on crime going on and that the federal government needed some more resources and more authority to deal with the gangster crime because what the criminals of the day that were capturing the headlines were doing was not considered a crime, bank robbery, killing a federal officer, helping a fugitive to escape. By 1934, May and June, those things had all been enacted into the federal criminal law. And so over time, some of those early organized crime authorities that the Bureau got, some of which dealt with gambling, which is where that whole uh, dog thing comes out of, the uh, dog fighting comes out of, 
were also federalized over that time. And, of course, some of those became really key authorities. One of the, the reasons why Joe Pistone was so successful was because the Bureau had been given the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act in 1970, which allowed it to build cases against organized crime enterprises instead of simply individual criminals. Of course, the other major thing that led to the Bureau's expansion and responsibilities, and really the thing that, if we look back, has caused the most growth in the size and resources of the Bureau are national security issues. From the beginning, the Bureau did have some national security functions. Um, very small, obviously, when we only had about two dozen things to investigate. They weren't the most significant thing we were doing, at least in the first two years. But the Bureau was in charge of investigating treason, very few treason cases in our country's history. We were in charge of investigating violations of the Neutrality Act. This became very big in the 1910-1915 period because it was the period of the Mexican Revolution, and a lot of those who had lost power in Mexico were coming to the southwestern United States and hatching revolutionary plots and then trying to raise arms and funds and people to go back and overthrow the government of Mexico. And so we were involved in a lot of those sorts of things, bringing us obviously into contact with military intelligence and Mexican intelligence and police. Of course, the big, big things are the national security crises, World War I, World War II, early Cold War, of course, the domestic unrest of the 70s, and today 9-11. World War I was that first big, in a sense, entree of the Bureau into national security matters. And it had to do with, really, uh, what you could call an intelligence failure. The period of 1914 to 1917, the war was raging in Europe, but the, America was officially neutral. There was no law against, federal law against sabotage. There were very few laws that even remotely touched on espionage or subversion. The problem was that the Germans and, and the English, too, were waging, in a sense, an intelligence war against the United States. And it was the German war that especially upset Americans. The Germans were waging a sabotage campaign to keep U.S. munitions from being shipped to its enemies. And that sabotage campaign made headlines. Things like the 1916 explosion at Black Tom Island. Uh, Black Tom Island was this little slip of land on New the um, New Jersey shore where munitions were offloaded from train cars onto ships right across from Ellis Island, if you can picture that, that area of New York and New Jersey there. And the explosion shocked people. Blew out windows in lower Manhattan, blew out windows in Jersey City. And the federal government's response was mute at best. Um, here we have... You know, it wasn't proven at the time, but here we have a foreign intelligence operation against U.S. merchants, against U.S. businesses, and killing U.S. people. And the biggest responder was the New York Police Department. There were maybe 50 Secret Service agents. There were about oh, a couple hundred bureau agents, but the Attorney General said that there is no law against sabotage. We can't investigate that. Obviously, those increasing attacks finally had its role in leading us into war 
April 1917, Congress declared war and almost immediately passed something called the Espionage Act, which becomes, in a sense, the pillar of American national security law for ages. The Attorney General had um, proposed similar legislation not two years before that and been dismissed for seeking spy powers, much like um, Chief Wilkie of the Secret Service had been accused years before in the, the run-up to the Bureau's creation. That didn't mean, you know, the Bureau, in a sense, stepped up then as responsible for investigating violations under that act. And it wasn't just an act against espionage and sabotage. There were subversion components to it as well. Um, the Sabotage Act of the next year uh, furthered some of those subversion components. It, of course, led to one of our first uh, big problems, the Palmer Raids, of which um, you may be aware the Attorney General, in responding to domestic terrorist attacks, a series of bombings across the country, including his own front porch, launched a campaign to try and kick enemy anarchists out of the country. Uh, under the law, you could not emigrate to the United States if you were an anarchist. And so he thought that if we round these anarchists up who are obviously responsible for the bombings, the problem will be solved. He went too far obviously working with um, another one who you are familiar with, John Edgar Hoover, who was in charge of the intelligence part of that campaign, and created a real scandal because of abuses of the civil liberties of too many people who were rounded up inappropriately. But a backlash occurred, as it does in these cases. The Bureau began to reconsider what it was doing. Of course, the government itself began to push other priorities. The 1920s, 1930s was a period when other crimes were at issue. Prohibition, of course, was the law of the land, but that was a responsibility largely for the Treasury Department. The Bureau wasn't much involved in that. Coming into the gangster era, of course, violent crime was a serious national concern. And the Bureau ended up getting authority to start dealing with that. And, of course, because of the way it did, because of its effectiveness against Dillinger, despite missteps like Little Bohemia, and its effectiveness against Babyface Nelson and Pretty Boy Floyd and the other named gangsters, the Bureau was able to emerge, as Tim said, as really the, the preeminent law enforcement organization of the day. And that kind of reputation served us well. But that authority was changing again. World War II was on the horizon. And it's World War II where you see the biggest increase in bureau uh, personnel, bureau resources, certainly over, over time. If you count the Mann Act, that was a pretty big one, too, because we, we doubled in size. World War II, we didn't just double. We went from a couple of hundred uh, people to more than 10,000. So over that, that period of the late 1930s to 1944, the FBI's responsibilities and role in this country increased greatly. And it was because of national security concerns. An uptick in Japanese and German espionage was being noted. The Bureau started to get together with the Army and the Navy to say, if war breaks out in Europe, how are we going to do things differently than we did in that period of neutrality in World War I? So in part, you see the government learning from previous failures in this case. And basically what happens is the Army takes care of 
national security matters in Army facilities. Navy takes care of it in Navy facilities. And the Bureau ends up being in charge of most everything else, from providing uh, anti-sabotage suggestions to plants across the country. Of course, counter-espionage becomes big. Uh, just before the start of World War II, we break a large German spy ring, effectively dealing a, a severe blow to German intelligence operations in the U.S. 1940, the president tasks Hoover with creating a foreign intelligence service to look at Nazi and Japanese plots being hatched in South and Central America. And so the Bureau become, begins sending undercover agents to those countries to infiltrate Axis spy rings. Uh, we end up taking over several radio networks. We end up um, doubling a number of those agents, not as many as the, the British did in their uh, double-cross program, but doing sophisticated counterintelligence work. Uh, on the flip side, of course, the Soviets were steadily infiltrating the government as well at the time which would become a problem in the early Cold War. But, of course, through much of World War II, Soviet Union was our ally. Our resources, the Bureau's resources, always limited, not surprisingly, were focused on countering the Nazis and the Japanese. The early Cold War sees a bit of a, a peace dividend, in a sense, in, as far as size and resources go. The Bureau declines in size a little bit, but... Not surprisingly, national security remains you know, top of that priority list. That early Cold War period is one where, of course, we were discovering not just that we, we were seeing the outlines of Soviet espionage, but that we actually had missed just how deep and how many people were penetrating the government. But projects like the Venona um, decrypts, working with the Army, later the National Security Agency, to read Soviet telegrams during World War, that were sent during World War II really gave us a grasp on those penetrations. You see, in the late 1940s, the Soviets have to change the way they do intelligence in the United States and really in the Western Hemisphere as a whole because of the investigative work being done. It leads to a much more proactive approach for the Bureau in the 1950s, which is kind of ironic since it's obviously the time when Joe McCarthy is uh, launching his campaign against communists in the government. McCarthy, of course, didn't know what the government knew about counterintelligence. It was considered to be that much or that, that sensitive a secret at the time. So the repercussions, obviously, to secrecy, it's another theme you can certainly see in our history throughout the 1950s continued into the 1960s. Domestic security becomes the big issue, whether it's tackling the Klan and their violence in the South, or how do you deal with a nation that seems to be coming apart at the seams in so many ways. Um, obviously, in many ways, the, the Bureau went overboard because you see certainly in the repercussions afterwards in the 1970s during the church committee hearings and even before that when uh, COINTELPRO or the counterintelligence programs were first revealed that many of its activities did not sit well with the American people, <clears throat> that there was much to criticize and much that we had to reconsider. Those sorts of revelations, of course, did lead to a significant reconsideration led to the institution of the Attorney General guidelines, led to the passage of uh, new laws like the FISA Act. 
and it led to a reevaluation completely of how the Bureau does domestic security. One of the lessons, I think, there is that, that the Bureau is an organization that actually has learned over time, that it has been able to change in regards to criticisms it faces. It doesn't always do it easily. And the first, first six letters of bureaucracy are Bureau. So we do bring a little bit of that into it as a government agency. Finally, closing up, I think if you look back at that evolution of the FBI over time, sometimes we are responding to crises as we see them developing. More often than not, we are a tool of the federal government. We are the investigative branch of the Department of Justice. We have, obviously, a very broad responsibility, and we have from the beginning. What, what has changed is the number and detail of what those responsibilities entail. As an organization of humans, we've made some mistakes, sometimes big ones. And yet, I think our reputation has been built also, not so much on those failures, but on the successes. And that those, I think, show us that looking towards the future, there are things that we are certainly going to continue to face. I mean, that balance of liberty and security, that line that we have to walk in ensuring that we protect lives, properties, and liberties of our fellow citizens is always going to be there. And it is something that colors what we do and how we were perceived. But with that, I thank you, and I look forward to your questions later. Our second speaker has come all the way from the state of Wisconsin to be with us today. He's a nationally recognized expert on both J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. He earned his master's degree and Ph.D. in political science from the University of Chicago, and he has taught history at Marquette University for more than 30 years. As Dr. Fox mentioned, in the mid-1970s, Senator Frank Church held extensive hearings on domestic abuses that were perpetrated by both the CIA and the FBI. And during that period, Senator Church asked our guest to examine presidential records relating to the White House and the FBI because he'd already established himself as a pioneer in that field, uh, publishing several articles on the FBI and its wiretapping activities. Uh, after his work on the Senate committee, he used the Freedom of Information Act to become one of the foremost specialists on the history of the FBI. He really digged into their records to find out what was actually going on. Uh, he has earned numerous awards over the course of his career, and he's authored more than a dozen books, including this 2004 volume called The FBI and American Democracy. Would you please welcome Dr. Ethan Theo Harris. Thank you, Tim. Uh, if I would title my remarks, it would be bureaucracy, semicolon, the problems of secrecy and accountability. I th when Tim invited me to speak, I had no problem. It seemed wholly appropriate that the Cato Institute would have a session on the 100th anniversary of the FBI because, in a sense, the history of the FBI is the history of the United States in the 20th century. The very creation of the Bureau in 1908 reflected a significant change in the conception of the role of the federal government from believing that law enforcement was primarily, if not exclusively, a local and state responsibility to the radical expansion of the federal government's law enforcement role 
And paralleling that was a significant expansion in the role of the federal government, which of necessity meant that you had expansion of both the role and authority of the FBI. And I think that's captured statistically. From a Washington-based task force of 34 created in 1908, the FBI expanded to a task force of 28,000 that includes both agents and support staff stationed in 56 field offices across the United States and 62 legats, uh, foreign liaison offices in foreign countries involving liaison between the FBI and foreign police and intelligence agencies. That expansion, both in terms of uh, personnel as well as geographically and as well as in terms of mandated law enforcement responsibilities on the federal level, obviously created certain administrative problems for FBI officials, which I think were, if imperfectly, effectively addressed and is reflected in the, the nature of both the training of agents and the degree to which the FBI evolved as a centralized and disciplined uh, law enforcement agency that I think deserves, as a critic of the Bureau, its reputation as one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent, law enforcement agency internationally. This was addressed by not only the fact that agents were, before their appointment, uh, rigorously examined and at the time of their appointment would be subject to training sessions in which John Fox gives a lecture to new agents and would come back periodically for training sessions, would receive a manual of rules and regulation that identified the various areas of investigation and the rules and procedure that were to govern those, would be subject to not only review by their superiors in the field, but by officials in headquarters, uh, that ensured that there was this kind of tight direction control and that also ensured that there would be the ability both to acquire and to have access to relevant records. Uh, the FBI has this, and I speak as someone who, as Tim suggested, uh, still uses a manual typewriter and has no email, so perhaps I'm not the one who should defend the FBI's record retrieval system, but they identify records by means of classification and thus... Uh, you will have 65 for espionage, 100 for internal security, 246 for foreign intelligence, 256 for terrorism, so that you would begin a file based upon the specific nature of the investigation. And to ensure access to information, you have a, a record system that identifies not only all case files pertaining to that individual, so you could have access to information. This is a manual system before computers. And the FBI was not immobilized by the fact that it didn't have a computer system. And I don't think it's immobilized by the problems that it suggested with respect to its inadequate computer system today. And also C-references. A C-reference refers to another file uh, in which there is a reference to that individual. So the FBI had this ability to amass and to bring together information relevant to a specific individual and thus to understand and to piece together all the information that was accumulated. To ensure coordination, if you look at the other problem, because individuals would be moving around the country, you would have offices of origins and auxiliary offices, where the office of origin would be responsible for the conduct of the investigation. An auxiliary office, when they picked up information, would be responsible to forward it uh, to the office of origin. So that you had uh, this fairly efficient system by which information was collected, 
and by which individuals, agents were able and superiors at headquarters to deal with the manifold nature of the problems the nation confronted. So that looking at this, I think, uh, in a sense, I go somewhat beyond John's comment and suggest that if you look at the history of the FBI since its creation in 1908, administratively, it dealt with both its mandated responsibilities and the difficulties of meeting those mandated responsibilities. Where I disagree with John rather significantly is in the, in the other area, and, and I think the most important catalyst, as, as John suggested, involves the explosion of the FBI's role that, that post-dated 1936. And that dealt with the FBI's assumption of what might describe national security investigations. And what I think is significant, if we look at the 1936 date, in a sense rebutting both the criticisms advanced about the FBI's failure to have anticipated 9-11 by both the Keene Commission and the Joint House and Senate Committee, and seemingly triggering uh, the announcement by Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Director Mueller in May 2002 that the FBI's culture had to be changed from law enforcement culture that was reactive to a preventative approach that was proactive. I think that's a distortion of the reality of the FBI's evolution since 1936. Based upon an oral directive of President Roosevelt, the FBI began to conduct intelligence investigations. By that I mean these investigations were not triggered by the belief that there was a probable cause that the individual or the organization was involved in the federal statute. So you had the inception of non-criminal investigations. The intention then, much as the intention post 9-11, was to anticipate espionage and sabotage, whereas post 9-11 the intent was to anticipate terrorism. And what that meant specifically is that FBI investigations went well beyond seeking to identify individuals who would commit espionage or sabotage, but who might commit espionage and sabotage. And the result of this, if we look at the history of the FBI, as reflected both in the biographies that have been published about prominent Americans going beyond the Church Committee report, that is, the FBI was amassing information not only about Soviet and German agents and the recruited spies, but about American citizens' personal and political activities. And so you had the explosion in the number of files that were being created. And while the most infamous cases are the FBI's COINTELPROs of the 1950s and 1960s and its actions with respect to Martin Luther King Jr., the reality was that the subjects of FBI investigations range broadly, providing certain suggested identifications from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, Democratic governor and presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson, syndicated columnist Joseph Alsop, folk singer Pete Seeger, uh, actor, singer Frank Sinatra, and my favorite actor, Rock Hudson. So in a sense, what the FBI was doing was collecting information that had no legitimate law enforcement or national security purpose, and we reflected this accumulation of information uh, that could not be used to prosecute individuals for violation of federal statute. This did not mean, however, 
that the FBI sought to obtain information by legal means. And so what we find also coinciding with this is the expansion of the FBI's use of intrusive and also illegal investigative techniques. Wiretapping authorized by secret directive of President Roosevelt in May 1940, installation of microphones by means of trespass, originally done solely on the authority of FBI officials, approved by Attorney General Brownell in 1954, break-ins to photocopy records of individuals and organizations based upon authorization strictly of the FBI director, mail cover and mail intercept programs variously. So in a sense, what we find the FBI doing is acquiring information illegally. I guess the rationale and justification for this is that if you want to anticipate espionage as opposed to prosecute spies, you want to, in a sense, prevent them from doing what you would want them not to do. And thus, there is a rationale for use of illegal investive techniques because clearly it means if you acquire information about the commission of a crime illegally, you can't indict or convict that individual. So essentially, the rationale for intelligence investigation is to advance the nation's security interests, not by prosecuting individuals in the courts of law. But what was done with this information was not that they repose in FBI files. The FBI officials sought alternative means of influencing the popular culture, and they did so by disseminating this information to favored reporters, editors, columnists, members of Congress and congressional committees, which in a sense uh, raised this question that the FBI was now moving into the political arena and seeking to influence public policy and public opinion. Now, this posed real problems for FBI officials, which they effectively address by devising over time a series of separate records procedures, the purpose of which was to permit them to do what they should not have done at the same time to escape discovery what they were doing. And so the FBI, under Hoover, developed this do-not-file system for breaking requests and authorization documents. Now, that's interesting because the memo describing this procedure begins by saying black bag jobs. That's the Bureau's term because that was the color of the bag that agents did when they conducted break-ins, are clearly illegal. So you had a law enforcement agency engaging in what was recognizably clearly illegal activity, and we can't obtain the authorization of the attorney general. So they were, in a sense, doing their own thing, but they devised a system by which they minimized discovery of the FBI's conduct of break-ins. June mail, for specially sensitive, quote, investigations, such as obtaining information from, quote, secretaries to prominent officials discussing the officials and their attitudes, and from, quote, sources illegal in nature, wiretaps, bugs, and mail opening. And so this is a, a system that sought to isolate these records from the FBI central record system under lock and key in the special file room and thus minimize discovery of both the fact that the recruiting secretaries to, re to report on their bosses and they were using illegal investive techniques. Administrative pages for information which, if disseminated, would embarrass the Bureau. Blue, pink, and informal memoranda. A blue was originally to distinguish from white memoranda. It was changed in 1942 to, to, to pink because the Department of Justice required the use of blue for internal correspondence. Pink memorandum contained this notation at the bottom. This memorandum is for administrative purposes to be destroyed after action is taken, not sent to files, which permitted the communication of information among senior officials at headquarters 
without the risk of discovering what they were discussing and approving. Under Hoover's order in 1953, the office files FBI assistant directors were to be purged every six months of FBI supervisors every 90 days. Blind memorandum typed on non-letterhead stationery without identifying the sender and the recipient, which permitted the FBI to disseminate information outside the Bureau itself without it being retrievable as an FBI source. And the, and the degree to which they assisted reporters and columnists and members of Congress and congressional committees with, on the condition of non-disclosure of the FBI's assistance. Summary memoranda on members of Congress. Summary memoranda are not files or dossiers which allowed the Bureau to deny that it was collecting information about the subversive activities and immoral conduct of members of Congress. And since what you had here, I think, was a really serious problem, if you understand this in terms of the degree to which secrecy minimized the Bureau's accountability. And I think it raises real serious questions that I think we need to address when we discuss both the significance of 9-11 and how we've responded to that. And let me close by discussing two examples, which I think in, an, in a capsule capture the essential problem that I think is the byproduct of this kind of expansion that is taking place in the Bureau's role in, Amer in the American polity. In 1955, a New York FBI agent attended a training session in Washington during the course of which he offered his assessment that he thought that break-ins were unconstitutional. Alerted to his conclusion, FBI officials immediately ordered the suspension of the New York office's break-in activities to ascertain whether the, quote, mental attitude of this agent was shared by members of the break-in squad. <laughs> Having discovered that it was not, the suspension was lifted. And I think the significance of that is that it really captures this kind of mindset. And that mindset is essentially, to, 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 to phrase it glibly, is a law is a problem. And if it's a problem, it in a sense requires this kind of assessment. If you can do it and get away with it, you do it. So if you have do not file uh, to minimize discovery of records, and you have assurance that agents conducting break-ins even though they're trained as lawyers, are not really troubled by what they're doing, then in a sense you can rely upon this invaluable investive technique because you have access to this kind of otherwise unobtainable information, subscription lists, membership lists, correspondence, and then in a sense would advance the ability to understand the actions and activities of the targeted individual or organization. The second example does not directly involve the FBI in the same way, but the recent disclosure that FBI agents conducting joint interrogations with CIA officials concluded in, 19, in 2002 uh, that these interrogations were brutal and inhumane, and they, they uh, began a, quote, war crimes file. And in 2003, they were ordered to suspend that file. In a sense, what you confront here was a situation in which agents, as a, as a function of their activities, had serious reservations about the conduct of these activities and whether, in effect, it violated federal statute. And the result of this, in a sense, was to suspend that kind of investigation without disclosing what could have been a questionable practice through the prosecution of the individuals, whether authorized by the president or not, 
uh, there does seem to be this sense on the part of age, not that you have the, the latitude of deciding whether to indict an individual, but there seems to be this internal consideration of what was being done that I think is sort of central if we look at what I think is the underlying problem of dealing with the history of the FBI. For the FBI to operate effectively, it must operate in secret. Criminals, spies, and terrorists should not know that they're being monitored because, in a sense, it's going to frustrate the ability to identify those who intend to engage in crime or in espionage or terrorism. But to what extent, then, do we accept the need for the agents to operate if you look at this history where the underlying intent was, in one sense, to shape public opinion, to monitor broadly, but at the same time to preclude discovery. And I think the history of the FBI raises very sharply that issue of accountability. And how do we, as we deal with different problems, ensure that the agency does not violate individual rights, or if we look at the essence of the American constitutional system, accepts the, the limited role of the government as defined by law. And the history of the FBI suggests that this problem has not been addressed, not in 1909 when the Attorney General was being questioned about his executive order establishing the Bureau when Congress was not in session in 1908, not in 1924 when you had the series of scandals during the World War I and post-war period, not in 1975 and 1976 in the aftermath of the Church and Pike Committee hearings, and surely not and here was where I dissent with both the Keene Commission and the Joint Committee, when the conclusions reached by those bodies was that the need for a creative and aggressive FBI. And I'm saying, what FBI are they talking about? Because in my sense, it was a very creative and very aggressive FBI, and the source of the failure of 9-11 was not the absence of authority or restrictions imposed upon the agency by a law enforcement culture. Our third speaker today uh, began his journalism career during the Vietnam War when he joined the Indochina Resource Center. Uh, with the center, he investigated and wrote about CIA abuses overseas, and then he became editor and senior writer for the National Reporter, where he specialized in covering uh, intelligence agencies. Over the years, he's been published uh, widely in American newspapers and in American magazines. He's also done extensive works uh, with uh, the TV networks producing documentaries. He's worked with all the major networks, NBC, Dateline, CBS Evening News, and ABC News. While working on a documentary about the Pan Am 103 bombing, he became aware of serious problems uh, in the forensic science field, especially as practiced by the FBI lab. Uh, the problems in the FBI lab broke out into the open uh, during the late 1990s when an F FBI agent uh, whistleblower came forward. His name was Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, and he came forward uh, leveling allegations about sloppy and unscientific practices in the FBI lab. And he raised these problems at first initially with his supervisors and tried to take it up the chain of command. But then when he was threatened with discharge, being fired for what he was doing, that's when he brought his allegations out uh, into the open and in public. I saw Dr. Whitehurst on TV a few months ago, and he was explaining that one of the proudest moments of his life was when he walked across the stage to get his credentials as an FBI agent. It was something that he wanted to do since he was a child. And then 
how he became disillusioned when FBI supervisors would confront him and ask him to testify in court as to X, Y, and Z when he didn't think those things were true and when he found out that his scientific reports had been altered without his knowledge. He came, became completely uh, disillusioned with the FBI. Our guest has wrote about uh, this subject in magazine articles, and then he put uh, those articles, compiled them, and, and put it into a, a book which he co-authored a book called Tainting Evidence, Inside the Scandals of the FBI Lab. So would you please welcome author and investigative journalist, Mr. John Kelly. If it's okay, I'll speak from here. That's fine. Okay. Uh, I, I, should, I, I should just mention as a, as a preface that I, I'm also a former research scientist. I am entitling my speech uh, by a hair, On a March day in 1992, the jury was hung, but the FBI's premier hair and fiber analyst, Michael Malone, brought them around and broke their deadlock, as he had with many previous juries. They were hung on the question of whether Anthony Bragdon, a 19-year-old African-American, had raped Coranda Farmer because the prosecutor's medical examiner provided no evidence of rape or violence, and the jury did not believe Farmer's testimony. At this point, the judge told them they could reconvene and consider the charge of assault with intent to rape. The jury did, and they convicted Bragdon, because Malone testified with scientific certainty that a fiber allegedly found in Coranda Farmer's underwear came from a carpet in Bragdon's apartment. Malone's testimony was consciously false because he had not scientifically matched the fibers. So what he was what Malone testified was that a fiber that they found in this woman's underwear matched a fiber in the suspect's carpet in his apartment. Even if he had matched the fibers, it did not begin to prove it came from Bragdon's carpet, which was one of thousands of such mass-produced carpets. But the jury had no way of knowing this and were led to believe Malone's testimony was gospel by the prosecutor who instructed them, quotes, isn't the important point that the fibers came from some piece of clothing? Coranda told you she was laid on the carpet, laid on the floor when he raped her. The only way those fibers could have gotten on any of that clothing was as if she was laying, which is the word the prosecutor used instead of lying, was as if she was laying on the floor. The carpet fibers that were found on Coranda Farmer's clothing overwhelmingly, in all likelihood, came from the carpet in Mr. Bragdon's home. 
Bragdon was convicted and received a 30-year sentence. A version of this scenario has been replicated hundreds of thousands of times in this country since the introduction of forensic science into the courtroom. Malone himself was the chief prosecution expert witness in more than 500 cases. In 1997, a report by the Inspector General of the Justice Department singled out Michael Malone and 10 other FBI lab examiners as forensic frauds. Eventually, this information made its way through the judicial system, and on March 14, 2003, Judge Stephanie Duncan Peters ruled in reference to Malone in the Bragdon case that quotes, the court concludes that in this case, false testimony was presented to the jury. The court concludes that there is reasonable likelihood that this false testimony affected their verdict. Under these circumstances, the defendant is entitled to a new trial. End of quote. The state chose not to re-prosecute Bragdon, and he was set free. This is the first time in the history of this country that a convicted prisoner was exonerated and freed specifically because of false forensic evidence. And I'm here today to announce, if you will, it it is not going to be the last. Bragdon Anthony Bragdon filed a civil suit against Michael Malone, which was dismissed by the court, which ruled that Michael Malone, who had been documented as having given falsified testimony, the court, maru- the court ruled against Bragdon's civil suit, dismissed it, and stated that Michael Malone enjoyed, quotes, absolute immunity, end of quotes, from negligence, damage claims, and, quote, sovereign immunity, end of quote, i.e., the king can do no wrong, as an FBI employee. However, I have recently obtained absolute proof that thousands of current prisoners have been convicted, wrongfully convicted, at the hands of Malone and other forensic examiners. The king, in fact, has no clothes. Myself and my colleagues 
intend to provide this information to these prisoners and their attorneys, as well as catalog this information in a searchable format CD to make this information freely available and to compel investigations by the forensic science community, the Justice Department, the courts, and Congress. So rather than bore you with a litany of FBI crimes, I solicit your support in what I feel is an exciting project to restore due process, fair trial, and equal justice under the law. We have had success so far in stopping the use of one forensic technique that the FBI used for 40 years in the wrongful conviction of thousands. Thus, we know we are on the right track and can succeed in redressing wrongful convictions and preventing future wrongful convictions. It's an enormous project, and I welcome concrete suggestions for foundation support as well as book publishers because I am writing a book about this matter as well as preparing a documentary. But we need help. Needless to say, certain parties are not helping. I also welcome hearing from anyone in the audience about congressional interest in pursuing this matter. And thank you. This problem of uh, forensic science and medical examiners, it sounds, it sounds incredible that there can be thousands of cases, as John Kelly said, but actually I think we're just, we're just beginning to learn more about how bad some of the forensic science are around the country. Uh, there was a big scandal in West Virginia a few years ago involving a medical examiner by the name of Fred Zane, if you want to go out and Google uh, just hundreds of cases where he was testifying, uh, and there was a big lawsuit brought against the state of West Virginia. And when they discovered the amount of fraud involved, they tried to quietly settle the case rather than to have it explode out into uh, the mainstream press. And there was a very good article in Reason Magazine last year called CSI Mississippi, which I also strongly recommend. There's a medical examiner down there by the name of um, Hain, Stephen Hain, who, again, is... Uh, does very, very sloppy work that's been exposed time and time again, but for some reason the authorities out there seem to be so embarrassed about the extent of the problem that they're just quietly hoping it goes away rather than to correct the problem because if they have to admit what has gone on, it means that other cases are going to be opened and it opens up the government to liability claims. So that's uh, this article uh, that appeared in Reason Magazine. I think you're going to be hearing a lot about lot more about Stephen Hayne and what has gone on in Mississippi in, in the months ahead. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that's waiting to explode out into the national press. Okay, with that, uh, I would like to uh, open it up for any questions or comments you have about the history of the FBI. I do have three questions, or requests, rather. 
When I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Please identify yourself in any uh, affiliation that you might have, and uh, please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, right here on the aisle. Hi, my name is Daniel Smith. I'm with the American Journalism Center. Uh, Dr. Fox, you mentioned that um, Mac uh, McCarthy didn't know what was going on uh, in the government. So it made me ask the question, what was the relationship between HUAC and uh, the FBI and McCarthy and the FBI? The relationship was one like much of the FBI's relationships with other committees. It did provide information to both McCarthy and his committee, um, tended to be stuff that was organized from publicly available material. When I talked about McCarthy not knowing, I'm talking about that um, cryptographic breakthrough that was Venona, which really, in a sense, was the center of early Cold War counterintelligence. So, in a sense, McCarthy got, got stuff that could be available to, to many different congressmen. Uh, certainly, as he started to go further and further, uh, the FBI cut off some of that contact with him. Um, it certainly maintained contact with the Committee on Un-American Activities you know, for a, a much longer time. Um, you did have former FBI agents working in both groups, although um, those that tended to work in, in those situations I do not believe had access to Venona either. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, that cryptographic breakthrough, that, that one top-secret thing, uh, wasn't known. They may have heard rumors of bits and pieces of it, sort of, but um, it really wasn't until the 1970s that really things even began leaking out about that, and it wasn't until 90, 1995 that it was actually declassified. Ethan, you wanted to comment? Yeah, let me, let me take issue with John Fox. Uh, uh, when uh, HUAC decided to initiate an investigation into communist influence in Hollywood, it confronted a major problem with the limitation of its resources, so it turned to the FBI for assistance. And the assistance the FBI provided was not public source. Um, dating from 1943, FBI agents had broken regularly into the Los Angeles section of the Communist Party, and they had photocopied membership cards. And they also had monitored uh, membership in, quote, popular front organizations. And this information was provided on the condition of non-disclosure of the FBI assistance to HUAC. And so when the so-called Hollywood 10 testified before the committee in October 1947, and refused on First Amendment grounds to answer the committee's questions. Uh, they were ordered dismissed, and then the counsel from the committee introduced as evidence into the record their membership cards and membership in an organization. So in a sense, it was the case that the FBI provided crucial assistance to what became the inception of the blacklist. In the case of McCarthy, the FBI did provide information, but not files. And they did so in a very careful way because the condition of assistance was non-disclosure. And then when uh, the, uh, the senator in 1953 appointed as a member of his staff a, a current FBI supervisor, the FBI severed relations with McCarthy because if, if McCarthy cited evidence, uh, it might establish a pipeline. And this pipeline concern led them to sever relations because it would disclose the nature of what they believed to be a necessary covert relationship. Yes, sir. 
My name is Stephen Shore. I work for the PBGC, a federal agency, but I'm here solely in my own personal behalf. Um, there were instances where the FBI would infiltrate groups and get them to act, to commit illegal acts that they mm -hmm. might not have been inclined to otherwise. And granted that in, in infiltrating groups that may pose a threat, this is always a problem for police work. But there are um, – I want to hear some discussion of, of their success in getting people to – commit illegal acts and, and providing them with the means to do it where they would not have done. And there was another curious incident that in the mid-60s, the New York headquarters of the Communist Party um, was the victim of a bomb explosion that ironically did much damage to the Serbian Orthodox Cathedral across the street as it did to the Communist Party headquarters. And the American Communist Party pointed out that their office was under 24-hour surveillance so that there was no way the bomb could have been planted without the Bureau knowing about it. And I don't think this crime was ever solved. So if anyone has particulars about um, these two points, I'd like to hear them. you have a comment? Ethan, want to go first? I'll go. I'll go first, give John the chance to last rebuttal. Uh, the FBI's COINTELPRO had as its purpose to harass, disrupt, and discredit it targeted organizations, and they did so by either seeking to sow dissension within the organization or to disseminate information which raised questions about the moral character and political associations of individuals. So you had, in the case of COINTELPRO, a formal centralized program in which records were created where agents sought approval and approval was granted and then they report the results of that. So that the COINTEL profiles are unique in the sense that you have a fairly comprehensive record of what the FBI was doing. It does not follow necessarily, then, that the absence of a written record means the absence of FBI activity. And thus, what I think is sort of interesting, which makes it very difficult to answer your question, is uh, do extant records provide a comprehensive set, if released, of the nature and scope of FBI activities? And the answer to that is, given the nature of FBI record destruction, is we don't know, and it's impossible to know. With re well, I was just going to try and quickly answer part of that, at least. Um, yeah, I don't know specifically about the CPUSA headquarters Serbian uh, you know, church bombing there. But with regards to informants, obviously you're not dealing with always the most reputable of people. And it is a fine line where you are trying to get them to work their way into a group to give you information you need about potential threats. Let's take the Klan, obviously. Anybody who's going into the Klan is going to engage in racist activity. Can that transcend to the illegal at times? Uh, I don't see why. It, you know, it, certainly it would at times. Um, does that mean that the FBI authorized it? I Certainly not officially and not as a matter of policy. Could individual people have done that? I don't know. Possible. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I'm Arnold King, and I got a question on, uh, you mentioned that the FBI structure is uh, too broad, and you mentioned they are foreign crime committed. My question is, uh, what has the, uh, what is the FBI doing right now in, uh, in, uh, and uh, keeping up, and uh, keeping up with what are they do to TC, and uh, Mr. Kelly, you you mentioned that uh, 
Uh, what FBI? My question to you, sir, is what FBI message or crime had the forensic assassin had got themselves into? Could you maybe some samples? I'm I'm sorry, I didn't quite get the question. Yeah. What are FBI misses? Mrs. Hadi, forensic assassin, had gotten himself into. I mean, where were the cause of the problem? What was the cause of the forensic problem? Yeah. I don't understand the question, so I don't, I don't blame you if you don't. I'm not sure either. Okay, let's move on. Um, well, down here. Yeah, well, my, my just, just wait for the microphone, please. Raul Kohlberg, and this also relates to uh, some of the forensic things, so any of the panel, I'd appreciate it and answer. Uh, Mr. Theo Harris was mentioning how the history of the FBI was like the history of the 20th century. One of the things that has developed all over that time has been all sorts of technology, fingerprinting, DNA analysis, uh, uh, ballistics, all sorts of other things of this sort. Uh, and I wonder if any of the panelists could deal with the effective or ineffective use of these various uh, techniques, uh, questions that come up in terms of both the importance and the unreliability of fingerprints, for example, and uh, problems of inaccurate use of DNA and that sort of thing. wonder if uh, Mr. Fox might give us some idea of the history on it and the other two uh, where maybe things didn't go so well. The Bureau, of course, has prided itself over its time as a pioneer in forensic science, at least its application to police investigative work. And although there have been problems from time to time, and some of these are a matter of sloppy work, some of them are a matter of more problematic efforts as well. Some of them are a matter of scientific debate. Uh, scientists debate uh, various methods, various interpretations of data all the time. And the problem of how that works itself out in the court system can be troubling at times because the jury tends not to be a, panelist, a panel of scientific experts, and so they are relying on the testimony of the uh, defense experts and of the prosecution experts, and the judge has to mediate that. And you see articles all the time these days about how that balance is reached. I think that in some of these forensic science techniques, we're looking for new ways to, to discover things about the evidence that we are confronted with to do our jobs. I think overall... The FBI has done a good job. Were there some serious problems in the lab that, that had to be addressed? Absolutely. And I think that they've been working very hard to do that, not least of which is uh, getting national accreditation a um, number of years ago at this point. Let me follow up with that because I, I know that there was reported that the FBI settled its lawsuit with Dr. Whitehurst for a million dollars, and they said they were correcting the problems that had been identified with the lab. John, do you have... Yeah, I, 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 whether sure. I, I, I'd first like to respond to, I, I think uh, John Fox embodies the problem in that he's, he's speaking about scientific matters of which he knows nothing. Um, nothing personal, but... That no, I would say he, that he, I had a he, layman's knowledge of it, and I'm certainly not in scientific. But he, makes, he made scientific statements. Um, Forensic science has now been demonstrated. In fact, uh, 
Science Journal in August 2005 reported that their conclusion that there is no science to forensic science, period. There is no science to forensic science. Um, and so what flows from that, it, it, it's, it's, it's just corruption, okay? It's just, it's just, uh, it's, it's wrongful convictions when any convictions are based on forensic science because in addition to it not being a science, the Supreme Court has ruled that forensic uh, techniques and tests cannot be used if they're not valid and reliable. The field of legitimate science has concluded that these techniques, and my study has confirmed this, these techniques are not reliable, they're not valid. So everything that's occurring now within the field of forensic science, and it's not just the FBI, but uh, all these convictions uh, in this house of cards is going to fall. Uh, okay, I'd like to get to some other topics. Sure. Yes, over here. I'm Dina Temple Raston with National Public Radio. Um, a gentleman down there had talked a little bit about technology and the way the FBI has used that. I wonder if, uh, Mr. Uh, any of you can talk a little bit about confidential informants, human intelligence, and the way that has changed and whether problems that have occurred with confidential informants are, are being resolved. Ethan, do you want to speak to that? Um, I think the problem of confidential informants is how do you establish the, the reliability of the confidential informant? I think it's very difficult because, as John Fox suggested, the people you recruit as an informant might have an ax to grind and are conveying to you information that's not necessarily reliable information, and to what extent do you go with it? The problem, I think, is not so much confidential informants because they can be challenged in a court of law and you have an adversary relationship that could challenge the credibility of an informant when there is a prosecution being made. But it, it, and I think it deals with the whole issue of intelligence investigations when, when an investigation is not initiated, uh, either because these uh, officials conclude that there is not evidence that a crime was committed or there is a question about the reliability of the information being offered, whether obtaining from a confidential informant or being obtained by means of an intrusive investigative technique. And the consequence of that is what I suggested is that that doesn't necessarily follow that that information reposes in FBI files. And one of the problems that we confronted is the attempt to use that information in, in alternative means by, as, a, as an effort to shape public opinion, as was done, I think, very successfully by the Bureau uh, during the 19, late 1940s, 50s, and 1960s. John, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that the the issue of confidential informants, of course, is is as old as really human history. I mean, you've got Rahab in the Bible providing uh, Joshua intelligence, you know, about Jericho. It's not surprising that you know the FBI has to rely on people who want to provide information in a confidential way. Um, all police, of course, need that. And as you said, there are issues that have to be of great concern in how you deal with those 
those kinds of informants. Of course, we do work under a series of guidelines that the attorneys general have put out over the years, some of them dealing with the use of informants. Uh, it's, it's going to be an ongoing issue simply because we are dealing with humans and because it is a necessary part of the investigative work that the Bureau does. Okay, we have time for one more question. This gentleman down here. Uh, my name is San Ho Tree. I work at the Institute for Policy Studies here in Washington. Um, my office was um, a subject of a lot of attention during the 1960s and 70s. We were on Nixon's uh, enemies list. Uh, so between the IRS and FBI and CIA and everyone else, uh, we had a lot of uh, coverage. Um, and lately I've been talking to a former informant for the FBI and the Metrop Metropolitan Police Department in D.C., um, who is on his deathbed, basically, and wants to tell some stories and, and clear his conscience. And one of the stories he told us about how he broke into our office, uh, how the FBI was uh, working with the D.C. police were able to do it, was by um, not by just sucking up to or, or recruiting uh, secretaries and that sort of thing. We had a receptionist and a bookkeeper who were also FBI informants. But this was – they went through our cleaning lady. And uh, he, according to him, they planted drugs on her son, um, a young African-American male, and basically said, um, either you give us the keys to the institute or uh, your son goes away for a very long time. I don't know if there's any other kinds of, of, of history of that sort of thing where, where people were blackmailed uh, through this. And as a follow-up also, I don't know if this is an urban legend or, or not, uh, but I've heard that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to keep uh, the FBI out of narcotics enforcement because he saw the, the corrupting influences of alcohol prohibition and didn't want to infect his own agency with that. Nathan? Let me try to answer the, the break-in question. I'll pass on the second one to so give someone else a chance. Um, when the Church Committee discovered uh, in its investigation the memo describing the do-not-file procedure for break-in requests and authorization documents, on the bottom of which Hoover had in his handwriting said no more such techniques be used, that memo described that this, pro this program began in 1942. And the Bureau requested of the FBI and the Department of Justice a record of the number of break-ins the FBI had conducted between 1942 and, 19, and 1966. And the Bureau came back and said, well, because, and obviously if you have a records procedure, the intent of which is to destroy records in ways you can't identify the records were created in the first place, uh, the Bureau expressed the difficulty of, of addressing that concern and said that based upon interviews with agents, there were 238 break-ins conducted targeting 14 organizations. If you think of that, that seems to be a very limited use of break-ins during that period of time. Um, but, and there's always a but, right? But the problem was that the head of the New York office, John Malone, for reasons unknown and unknowable, had kept in his office, as he was to have destroyed, break-in records from the period 1954 to 1973. So there you had records of a New York office. We don't know if these were a comprehensive record of all break-ins involving that office, and reviewing those records and simply focusing on break-ins not to install microphones, but break-ins simply uh, to photocopy records, uh, the number of break-ins conducted during that period, 54 to 73, by uh, the New York office was around 450, and it involved 200 to 300 uh, targets. Why, why that variation? Well, because the, when the Bureau released it, it had to release the, the name of the organization, but it could redact individuals. So it's hard to say whether in August... 1261 and in October 2361 involved the same individual or two different break-ins. What I found further discouraging about this was the fact that some of the captions of these break-in documents uh, were uh, 
criminal investigations, which would suggest that the FBI was conducting break-ins with the intention of laundering that information during criminal prosecution. But I think the, 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 the broader point is that you have record destruction and purposeful record destruction. So it's very difficult to evaluate what the FBI was doing in the past, not because we're conspiratorial, but because you have this obvious, confirmed, strategic objective of precluding the discovery of the FBI's past activities. And I think that does raise the question about whether the lessons learned post-Church Committee was that if you operate on the assumption that you have a fail-safe system by which you can do things illegal without discovery, maybe you devise a more sophisticated system in the aftermath of 1975, and so either you don't create the records or you create them in ways that are not discoverable. And, and I don't want to leave you with that kind of conspiratorial notion, but, I mean, the history of the past says that power is pretty seductive. And if you really believe that you're acting in the national interest, then you act in the national interest, and the law be damned, uh, which is a pretty stark thing to say, but I find it sort of disconcerting to have to say that as well. Earlier this morning, you were telling us that not all of these break-ins happened like in the middle of the night when there was nobody there. Sometimes the agents would encounter people, and I don't know, was, it, was this the New York office or some other office, but they would, you were saying, beat some people up? And there was, there was, I mean, gone beyond blackmail, they would beat up people in the offices to make it appear as if it was a criminal break-in. They would well, beat people up. It, what, was, what was interesting is that uh, when, when this whole disclosure of FBI break-ins became known, um, there was this weather fugitive case involving the New York squad, uh, and in the course of which it looked like the Department of Justice was, was only going to prosecute members of that squad. Uh, but ultimately, it went up to the indictment of Al Patrick Gray and Miller and Felt. But at that time, because agents were really concerned about what they felt to be the unfair targeting of agents who were acting pursuant to authority, they were willing to talk to reporters about break-ins I've conducted. You know, that was sort of like the fish that got away, how large the fish was. And so in a sense, what they were saying, which I think was interesting, if the purpose of do not file was to ensure that you weren't willy-nilly resorting to break-ins. You would have to justify the value of the break-in and also have to, in this memorandum, express what safeguards were adopted to ensure against discovery. Uh, what what uh, Anthony Morrow, who covered uh, the FBI and justice for the New York Times in the 1970s, discovered is that agents said that we broke in first and then requested authorization afterwards. And why did they do that? Because you had to explain the value of information obtained through a break-in, so that if you conducted a break-in, it was dry, you found nothing, you didn't request authorization, so this very sophisticated system to ensure against agents acting on their own broke down. Uh, secondly, members of the break-in squad were specially trained. The Bureau did train agents in how to conduct break-ins, and break-in operations were very sophisticated jobs. Eight to 12 agents were involved. You cased the, the target beforehand. Uh, an agent would monitor the individual who was, whose apartment or office was being targeted. There was walkie-talkies to relay back to the agents in the office that the, that the individual was coming back. And in those cases, this is what Tony Morrow found out, where the, the individual came back and the system broke down, what, they, what the agents in the office did is they simply beat up this guy as a means of, that's what the agent said, because uh, it's not in the records, the agent says we beat him up to make it appear like there was, this was a robbery that he came uh, unknowingly uh, across and not an FBI operation. 
John, I'll give you the last word. Yeah. Um, obviously, the break-ins are a troubling part <laughs> of our past. And Dr. Thea Harris, of course, <laughs> has written a lot about it. The context in which they developed initially in 1942 is, is uh, um, one date, but they were things that were done as, as um, intelligence-gathering efforts earlier than that. World War II was a period when a lot of things went on. The problem, I think, came later when these things were targeted at more domestic groups because they weren't a means of gathering foreign intelligence. They were a means of gathering in, uh, intelligence about radical threats. And it led to all sorts of issues like some of those that Dr. Theo Harris uh, has, has written about for many years. And it was the kind of thing that we were, were severely criticized for during the Church and Pike Committee hearings. I, the agents who went after the Weather Underground fugitives really thought that they were doing the right thing. It doesn't, it doesn't exonerate them, but they thought that we needed to find these dangerous domestic terrorists. And because they were operating in, in some ways in a policy vacuum, both a, a legislative one and an executive one, they ran into situations that they dealt with in an ad hoc manner or in, in the case of the break-ins, of course, and one that had developed from one basis into a much broader one over time. Those are the kinds of things I think that we have to be aware of and have to find ways to deal with. Part of it comes from con congressional oversight leading to, to legislation. Part of it comes from Justice Department oversight leading to, obviously, Attorney General guidelines. And part of it comes, obviously, from the press and from others who seek to reveal these things. As I said, you know, the FBI made some serious mistakes in its past. And over the next 100 years, we will make, I'm sure, many more. But I think overall, the importance of what we do and the fact that we really are seeking to achieve that balance between liberty and security is what controls our day-to-day -day operations. Okay. That'll be the last word. We are out of time. Everybody here is invited to lunch upstairs. Would you please thank our panel for an interesting discussion? <laughs>